Hello, and welcome to Connecting the Pieces, an Eastern Sector Development Team podcast focused on connecting, supporting, and promoting good diversity, wellness, and reablement approaches. My name is Dale Park, and today with my colleague, Lisa Dean, we are talking with Catherine Harding. Catherine will explain the specific and timely appointments for triage model, or STAT, and how it can help health services understand their need, demand, and resolve waitlist issues. Lisa and I first met Catherine at a statewide occupational health forum organised by the Victorian Wellness and Reablement Consultants, where she discussed the STAT model. Catherine, by way of introduction for our listeners, perhaps you can share with us how your interest and involvement with the STAT model came about. I started my career as an occupational therapist, but over the last 10 to 12 years, I've had much more of a research focus and particularly in health services research and a particular interest in reducing waiting times for health services. I'm based at the Allied Health Clinical Research Office at Eastern Health in Melbourne, which is a partnership between Eastern Health and La Trobe University. It sounds like you've significant experience in the health sector in both clinical and research roles, which has obviously led you to the STAT model. So, Catherine, could you tell us what is the STAT model? So the STAT model is, stands for Specific Timely Appointments for Triage, and it's a model for helping services to set up their access processes to reduce waiting lists and to prevent a long waiting list from forming in health services. It sounds like the STAT model is very relevant to many service types. We know that the demand for access to health services, and in particular allied health services, can be quite significant in both regional and metropolitan areas. What types of services would benefit from the STAT model, Catherine? So, you know, we hear a lot about waiting times for particularly hospital beds and emergency departments and that kind of thing, but particularly waiting times are also a problem in ambulatory and community type services like community health services and community rehabilitation and those sorts of things. So that's these are the sorts of services where STAT is particularly applicable, the kinds of services where people have received, you know, a number of appointments over an episode of care. So STAT is really about trying to see the access to these services in a bit of a different way. Catherine, how does the STAT model differ to the traditional approaches to service access? Traditionally, let's say, a common approach of bringing people into these services is to have a referral arrive at a health service. Somebody will uh, look at that referral. Often they'll give them some sort of a triage or a prioritisation category. They'll put them on a waiting list. And then when other people are discharged from the service, somebody else is selected from the waiting list with reference to that triage category and they're admitted to the service and then they begin to have a fairly standard management plan that's often fairly common to multiple people within the service. And what are the problems with doing things that way? One of the problems with doing things in that way um, is that the people who are arriving are having their needs sort of compared to each other and some uh, triage, uh, they're being triaged in relation to the different needs of the people as they arrive in the service. But we're not taking into account the differences in need between, you know, Mrs A who's on the waiting list and Mrs B who's having her fifth appointment with the service. So the model is actually about taking a different view of how people access your service. So looking at your whole community, which includes your existing and your incoming clients. Yeah, that's right. So STAT is a way of reorganising our attitudes, I suppose, to how we accept people into services. 
rather than starting from the point of view of how many people is it reasonable for this service to see in a day or a week, it's really about saying how many people would we need to see in order to keep up with demand. And it's then about creating enough appointments in the schedule to be able to give everybody a first appointment quite quickly and then uh, prioritising their needs once they arrive at the service after that first appointment. And that's when the, the triage and the allocating of resources really starts to happen. So it's really about giving everyone equal access to an, a first appointment, but then making decisions about who is really the most urgent and needs the most resources going forward. Sounds interesting, Catherine. Can you give us some examples of environments where you've been able to test this approach? And what does success look like? Yeah, so we started off with a couple of pilot projects. So the very first one we did was in a community rehab program. And that's certainly been an environment where we've had quite a lot of success with the STAT model since. So community rehab seems to be a kind of a, a classic service where this approach seems to work really well. So the service that we first tried it with was at Eastern Health in Melbourne. And this was a service that followed very much the kind of traditional model that I just spoke about, people being put on a wait list and given triage categories and so on. And they had waiting lists of probably around about six weeks on average, but sometimes they might get up to three months the initial access to the service. Now that might not seem a really long waiting list, but it, this is a service that's designed to support people often once they come out of hospital or out of an inpatient rehabilitation setting. So these are people who don't want to come home and then wait for, you know, three or four or six weeks until they get their first appointment. So timely access is really important in these types of services. I think that's a really important point, Catherine. We know that the sooner we're able to reach people and initiate services, the greater the likelihood that they're going to be able to resume to their usual level of independence. So, Catherine, what does implementing this type of approach look like for a service like this? Implementing the STAT model in this service involves a number of steps, as it would in any service. So the first step is really about looking at the demand for the service, working out how many patients do we need to see, what sorts of capacity do we have, how many clinicians do we have, and therefore how many patients would a clinician have to see each day to keep up. Now, that might seem like, you know, a really difficult place to start, but it's really surprising how often we do all these calculations and come to the point where uh, people within the service will say, oh, well, that's actually about what we see anyway. So what we often see is that actually services don't have an imbalance between supply and demand, but what they do have is a backlog, which means they're seeing patients at the rate that they're coming into the service, but they're always weeks or months behind. And that was the case at this community rehab program. The average waiting times had fluctuated a bit, but they hadn't just changed substantially for a number of years. So if you've got a service like that, that's a really clear indicator that people are coming in at the same rate as they're leaving, but there's always this backlog, which means everyone will always wait, you know, four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or six months or whatever it is. I think you've really touched on the importance of having, understanding and using reliable data to drive your business. We can all fall into habits of doing things as they've always been done. And often all we'll get is the same outcome. And in this case, it's a consistent wait list that doesn't really shift. So I guess the question is, what did you do? So going back to our community rehab uh, program, this was exactly what we noticed at this service. So we figured out how many new appointments were needed in the diaries to keep up with demand and got those appointments in place and 
and protected. They were specifically for new patients. And then when newer referrals arrive at the point of service, then they're allocated immediately to one of those new appointments. So, you know, a big part of STAT is also about cutting down on all the mucking around we tend to do in health services. Often there's lots of processes around, you know, triaging and checking eligibility criteria and sometimes done by multiple different people and we shuffle pieces of paper all over offices before we actually get the patient in front of a clinician. So Mm -hmm. that's all about trying to undo all of that, get rid of all those layers, have appointments ready and waiting, referral arrives, they get booked straight in and then that's when the assessment happens. So after that first appointment or during that first appointment, the clinician gathers the information they need to make sure that this you know, patient is indeed at the right place and they're going to be suitable and get something out of the service. And then they can make some priority decisions about how they're going to allocate their resources within the context of their existing caseload. So it may be that this particular new patient actually is doing pretty well compared to a lot of the others on their list. And they might only end up getting one or two appointments. They might be reassured and discharged really quickly. And if someone's been given rapid access to an appointment, then the clinician doesn't feel any guilt about you know, saying to somebody, well, really, there's not a huge amount that we can do for you, or actually you're doing pretty well, you know, and give them some advice and, and send them on their merry way. Where if someone has waited six months to get that service, often clinicians feel more obliged to give them something a bit more. So, Catherine, how would an organisation go about managing their existing backlog when they're introducing this particular model? Yeah, that's a really good question because that is a problem in so many services. So before you can get something like this started, you really need to address that backlog of of waiting patients because if you don't, what will happen is um, you'll maintain uh, the service at the rate of demand, but you're going to still end up in this situation where you're always, you know, if you've got a three-month waiting list, you're always going to be three months behind. So you need a one-off strategy, and this is what we did in that community rehab program, to try to address the needs of the patients that are already on the waiting list. And there's quite a a lot of different ways that services can do that. In that initial pilot trial, we didn't have any additional resources. We just had to go, um, go with what we had. And one of the strategies that we used was to make use of a known seasonal lull. There was a particular time of year, just right after Christmas, when there'd been some elective surgery shutdowns and things like that. When we could see from um, cyclical, you know, annual referral data that we normally um, had a lull. And so, you know, the wait list generally tended to be at its lowest in about February. So we were able to time the introduction with that seasonal lull. And as well as that, we had a period of a number of weeks where clinicians were able to just focus really hard on seeing new patients off the waiting list. So that might have meant, you know, putting a few other non-clinical activities on hold or perhaps discharging a few other people a little bit faster than what what they might have otherwise or moving some of their patients into groups, you know, a little bit more quickly than what they might normally do. But just by making a few little changes temporarily around that for a a number of weeks and really focusing their energy on squeezing extra new patients in, they were able to work down that existing backlog over a couple of months. And other services, it you know, hasn't been quite so straightforward, particularly if you've got a very long waiting list. But there's lots of strategies you know, that can be used to help with that. You know, often even just starting with a, a comprehensive audit of the wait list, if you've got a very long wait list, can be really helpful. You know, often there are patients who have been on wait lists for a long time who don't need to be there. Sometimes if you can access a little bit of extra resources, that can help too. And you can perhaps look at you know, putting in a few extra clinical hours just to, to help take the edge off that backlog reduction process. 
Yeah, Catherine, we have a lot of service providers uh, in both metropolitan and rural areas. There's a lot of staff who work part-time, distances to travel and things like that. So I suppose what I'm hearing you say is, you know, these are all the things that organisations need to take into account to understand their existing workforce and capacity in order to then move into a new way of managing the demand. Yeah, that's right. So understanding your supply and demand is absolutely crucial. If you don't have a good grasp of of your service data, it's really difficult. Well, you can't make this work. That's kind of the fundamentals underpinning this whole model. And it's surprising how often people actually don't know how many referrals are received at their service, or they might know overall, but they don't have a breakdown of how many are received you know, for each particular discipline, for example. So if you have a a multidisciplinary service with social work and nursing and, you know, OT and physio, they may not know how many referral, they may know the the entire, you know, the the total number for the service, but they may not know the, the breakdown. So you really need to kind of get a handle on some of those things because that's going to help you to know how many new appointments you need for different disciplines to really make this work. But as you say, you know, the supply side is also quite important. And particularly if you have a lot of part-time staff, you may need to kind of look at in some detail about, well, how many part-time workers do you have who work on a Monday, for example, because a lot of public holidays tend to fall on Mondays. You know, these are all the different sorts of things that you need to take into account to really try to understand that equation. You mentioned the services who have multiple funding which would certainly be the case with a lot of community health services that we work with and hospitals. Is there any additional advice that you might give to those service providers if they were looking to implement this program or will it work the same way as it does for a service provider who's got a single funded source? There's no reason why I can't work for having multiple funding sources. I think one of the issues for those sorts of services is to work out to what extent they need, you know, it's important to them to divide these up. So, you know, if you get stat working really beautifully, then nobody should be waiting for a first appointment, no matter what funding stream they come from. So, you know, you might have it, you know, if you've got your calculations right, if you can get your backlog down to zero, which I understand, you know, we're talking ideal world here, and that might not be achievable for every service. But if you can get it working really well and everybody's getting rapid access to a first appointment, well, it really doesn't matter that much where their funding is coming from. But, you know, it's certainly true that some services, you know, don't kind of have the luxury of just having the right, you know, balance of resources for each of the different kinds of caseloads. It's pretty common to find community health services got a certain number of hours that are funded through one stream that's actually pretty well funded and doesn't have all that much of a wait list and then you've got another part of the organisation where you've got a much longer wait list and a different stream of funding but for whatever reason you can't actually redistribute those funds because you're accountable in different ways to the people who are providing that money. So in that particular situation you might need to almost treat those two funding streams as separate services. You work out what is your demand for each one of them, what is your supply within each one of them and you might find out that your community health speech pathologists, I'm kind of making this up a little bit, but they might need, you know, they might have to see, you know, four patients 
every four new patients a week to keep up with demand, where you might have a much better funded service, which is with the money coming through NDIS, for example, where you've actually got more clinicians for fewer referrals, and they, those clinicians are only going to have to see one patient a week to keep up with demand. And that may just be the reality in terms of what you're having to you know, be accountable for. But look, on the other hand, sometimes that data is actually really handy also for making a case to say our, our resources are not distributed the way that they should be. And perhaps, you know, using that as an opportunity to do a little bit of reorganisation. Catherine, apart from the obvious benefits of implementing this model in relation to demand management, what might be some of the other benefits, perhaps for your organisation or the clinicians working with this particular model and importantly for your clients? Yeah, look, there's quite a number of different benefits, you know, depending on kind of which lens you look at it through. Clearly, there are some benefits for patients, and we've done you know, a number of systematic reviews and, and looked at evidence around this in different kind of clinical groups. And, you know, reducing waiting time can certainly in some groups of patients, you know, reduce deterioration, it um, reduce anxiety related to waiting and also reduce some of those secondary outcomes, loss of income and those sorts of things if people are off work while they're waiting. So there are a whole lot of benefits for patients. Secondly, the clinician point of view, we've certainly had quite a bit of feedback from clinicians to say that a lot of clinicians like it because it increases transparency and accountability. It kind of evens things out, you know, amongst the team. So, you know, everybody's kind of got, got, everyone knows that everyone's expected to see, you know, the same number of new patients each week. And because patients are automatically booked into those appointments, there's less opportunity for sort of people to kind of pick the types of patients that they like off the list and perhaps leave the ones a little bit little bit tougher or not quite as enjoyable to, to work with. I mean, hopefully you, know, you, you don't expect that people do this sort of thing, but there is a little bit, I think, of, of subconscious bias in the way that people will select patients off waiting lists sometimes. But, you know, it does overcome any of those sorts of issues. And it just means that, you know, every patient gets very equitable and transparent access to the service. And in terms of health services, you know, there are certainly benefits of improving flow through these services. And the, the kinds of services I'm describing, often they're kind of in the later part of the healthcare continuum. You know, people might come in through emergency and through an acute ward to a rehab ward and then, you know, be discharged into the community for these sorts of services, or these sorts of services are preventing admission back into the acute sector. So, you know, these are services that also have, you know, often a lot of problems with patient flow. So if you know you've got places available in community rehabilitation, for example, clinicians are happier to discharge a little bit earlier from rehabilitation, which frees up another acute bed as someone comes across to rehab and so on. So it, you know, it helps that flow through the whole health continuum. Catherine, I was interested in what you were just saying there about the subconscious bias that can happen and does happen to, to all of us and clinicians and are, no, are not exempt to that. And I was thinking about when you were first describing the STAT model and one of the differences is that getting everyone off that wait list to have a first assessment and then looking at prioritisation. And I'm guessing the, the equity lens that then people are looked through is a bit more specific is that your experience or could you talk to that at all? Yeah, I think, well, one of the things that we encourage people to do in adopting this model is to not just look at their access processes, but also to be looking at the whole management that they use for patients going forward and the pathways that they have through their service and that whole kind of flow through the the patient experience of their service. Often services, you know, once someone is enters into the service, you know, they might kind of routinely offer people perhaps six to eight 
one-on-one -on -one appointments once a week over a couple of months and that's kind of their standard pattern of care. So through implementing STAT we really encourage people to really think about what are the different types of patients that come through their service and, and think about what the potential pathways might be to meet people's needs. So you know is there an opportunity to see some people in groups and or to have a couple of individual appointments and then could they go into some kind of a group or is there an opportunity for an upfront group to do some of the sort of common education stuff that you might do at a first appointment for lots of people who come for a similar condition. Can you start with an introductory group session that gives, particularly say in children's services where you might have you know, a lot of information being given to parents, could you do some of that in a different kind of environment to get people started and reduce some of the one-on-one the -on -one time you're having to spend with people? Are there some, um, some types of patients that are actually really amenable to self-management type models where you can perhaps have one or two upfront appointments, then a period of time with a self-management home program and some telephone coaching, for example? What it really comes down to is once you know the people who, who need your service, once you've seen them for an initial appointment, it's about stepping back and asking that question. Now I know all the people who need my service. How do I spread my resources to get the greatest good to the greatest number of people? And that might not be by giving everybody the same kind of standard plan of care, but actually saying, well, who are our kind of high needs, high service people? And who can we see in a different way so that we can, when we need to, we can spread our resources a little more thinly? Because it's not a perfect world and we all have limited resources. So it's really about thinking, how do we get the most out of them? I think that's great advice for providers, Catherine, particularly at the moment and what everyone's working through. We know a lot of services have moved online or are using telehealth, especially during lockdown in Victoria. And what you're saying is that irrespective of how you provide your service, whether it's telehealth or whether it's face-to-face, -face, all these approaches can be used with the STAT model. Yeah, that's right. And I think that there'll be a lot of people who are thinking, you know, who've had this experience now with telehealth, and maybe that is a way to increase the efficiency with which we use resources going forward and thinking about what we can learn from that. Certainly, we've spoken to a number of services that have put you know, certain resources online and that sort of thing. So again, going back to that sort of self-management idea, maybe there are, there are opportunities to be able to set up resources that they can direct people to, which won't replace face-to-face -face care. I'm, I'm not suggesting for a moment that that's what we would do, but it's about having other tools to complement what we do face-to-face -face so you can get the most out of that face-to-face -face time and have that really precious resource spread so that it can reach as many people as possible and some things that perhaps don't need to be done face-to-face -face and one-on-one -on -one, we can find other ways to do that so that we can get a little bit squeeze a little bit more out of out of the services that we have. I think it's really great to hear the way in which you're talking about like the STAT model and what for me it brings up is an investigation into how people operate and what's needed within the, the sector and the service to, to meet the needs that's out there in the community. With that comes change, obviously, and we're talking about quite a, a different approach or a different model that some people would be looking to adopt. And we know that change can be difficult for people to embrace and that leadership's often really important to make that successful. What's your experience of that or, or your advice around implementing a change like this? Dale, everything you said is absolutely true and we've seen it reflected in all of the projects that we have done. Um, you know, this is a change like any other, you know, change to a you know, model of care health setting. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, certainly it, 
understanding that it's a process of change is really important. And all of those kind of general principles of change management that many people would be familiar with about, you know, communication and involving people in the change, you know, are really important. We've, we've certainly observed a very strong correlation between kind of strong leadership and having people on board, particularly the people who are the kind of the leaders, team leaders and those sorts of people are really, you know, important for them to understand the model and to be able to get their, their staff know on board with it I think other things that are really important are to involve the team in kind of coming up with solutions in the workshops that we run we talk about a number of different exercises that people can do with their teams around brainstorming ways to reduce the backlog or looking at what the different options might be for models of care and how different groups of patients could be seen in different ways and if you can get your team around the table so that their their ideas are all um, contributing to those you know, solutions, that makes a really big difference with getting people on board. Another thing that we've noticed in, in terms of how people respond to this model, we've done some qualitative studies around this. And one of the things we've noticed is that people who have prior exposure to the waitlist and really understand the problem are often you know, much quicker to get on board with implementing this. So, And that's different in different services. Some some services have one or two people who might do all the stuff to do with access and management of the waiting list. And then they have clinicians who are having patients kind of booked in into, you know, they might, um, you know, then say when they've discharged a patient or when they're ready for a new patient, they might notify someone in the intake or reception or somewhere to say, can you book in, you know, two new patients for me next week? But they don't actually ever see that there are actually 100 people on the waiting list. They just, all they see is the new patients that are allocated to them. So when they're asked to do this and to see a set number of new people per week, they're expected to do something quite differently, but they don't really understand why they're being asked to do it. On the other hand, you have other services where the clinicians take turns in triaging or are very involved in that access process, or they might be the clinician who's picks up the phone regularly to the people who are saying, when will I be seen? Am I still on the waiting list? And if we're exposed to the waiting list, those people are often much more in favour of staying and get on board quickly and they really like it once it's implemented. So, you know, that would probably be one tip is to let people know, even if it's in the lead up to introducing something like this, put it on your staff meeting agendas, let people know our current wait list is 150 people or it's 80 people or it's six months or it's four months to the next appointment. Start exposing people to some of the data around waiting times. And that kind of helps to build a case for change, which is really important. Great advice, Catherine. Are there any other tips that you have for service providers about how to involve and engage staff in the case for change? One other thing that I would also add is not to underestimate the importance of your administration and intake staff. So they're often the ones who get left off the table for these sorts of discussions, but they're the people who are really embedded in those processes of booking new patients into appointments. And often they're actually the ones who will have to make some significant changes to the way they work. They may be being asked to book people straight into a first appointment, um, you know, on one on first inquiry or receipt of referral. And they may also have some kind of knowledge that other people don't have about what consequence, unintended consequences there might be of changing certain processes. And they've often got some really good ideas about how to make things more efficient. So I would also encourage people to really value and include the people who are doing that part of the, the workflow at their service. And they will be impacted by the change. So involve them in the discussions about how things are going to change and why. Mm, I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. And I think it was really interesting you saying how there can be different reactions and responses to people dependent on how involved they've been with the waitlist process themselves. And 
it could be that potentially some people are thinking that this change is about them as a clinician and how they do their role and could actually take it personally. Whereas if they're being involved throughout the process and having that explained, that can alleviate all of those potential concerns. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So Catherine, obviously you've talked about a couple of the considerations that people need to take into account if they were to implement this kind of system. Is there anything else that is critical to supporting successful implementation that you can think of? Yeah, one of the things that I think would be is great for people to be aware of is we've put together some really good resources for people to be able to use in implementing the STAT model. And so in answer to your question, part of this is about being kind of organised about it, having a structured process, being well informed before you start about what it is and what's involved and getting a really good understanding of your data, know whether you're one of these services that does actually have a real imbalance between supply and demand or whether you've actually got a constant backlog and, and resulting in a constant delay. So, you know, if, if you kind of look into all of that and you decide that this is the right model for you, then, you know, there's a step-by-step process that we've kind of put together that people can follow that goes through the process of doing those demand, collecting your data, doing those demand calculations, sorting out your backlog, you know, setting up those new appointments and then getting that new workflow happening. So kind of treating it as a, you know, a step-by-step process that's not going to happen overnight. It might take six months to get into place, but, you know, working through each of those steps in a sequential kind of logical manner. So Catherine, where can people access further information or the training that you are providing? So we've got a, a website that we've set up, which is www.stat.trekeducation.com. Org, and that TREK education is T-R-E-K education. And so on that website, you can download the handbook. You can watch the little video. And there's another little video on there that, that has some, a brief interview who's somebody with somebody who has done some implementation at their service. There's all of our publica- related publications. There's a page there for events that advertises when we've got workshops coming up. So those workshops but the workshops are a half day in length. We've been running them about every three months or so. And they take people through a lot of the information that I've talked about today in, in more detail in terms of what's involved in each of those steps and, and present some tools and things to help people along the way. And look, it's not essential to do the workshop to be able to implement state. You don't have to have a license to implement. The workshops are simply intended to be a place for people to talk to each other and find out more and, and sort of feel a little bit better equipped. But, you know, the information that's in the workshops is also in that freely available handbook. That's great. So we would certainly encourage anybody interested in learning more about STAT to jump onto the website. Catherine, you talked earlier about the introduction of STAT within a community rehab program. Perhaps to finish off our discussion today, I'm hoping that you might be able to share some of the outcomes or evidence that you've been able to garner from this or other implementation sites. Yeah, so we've had quite an extensive program of research around the STAT model to determine whether it works. So that community rehab trial um, was you know, the original pilot, really, that was kind of a a test case, a proof of concept, if you like. So that was a, you know, a before and after trial. And we found in that particular trial, we reduced wait time by uh, around about 
40%. Following on from that, we had another fairly pragmatic trial in before and after trial in a physiotherapy outpatient service, which I think, again, we put into the category of being you know, a pilot trial that was quite early on. And again, they didn't have so much of a problem with their mean waiting times, but their kind of tail end of long waiters, the people who were given low triage category, tended to be waiting you know, for far too long. They just kept getting pushed to the bottom of the list. So we did a, a little experiment there and found that we had quite a, a good result with the median waiting times reducing by a bit over 20% from memory, but much more dramatic changes in those long waiters. So it really you know, kind of evened the, the field for, for people with different levels of need. But following on those pilot trials, we were able to get funding for a much bigger trial through the National Health and Medical Research Council. So that was when we were kind of really able to run a, a fully powered trial. It had eight different sites. We used what's called a, a cluster stepped wedge design, which means all eight services implemented the model, but they all did it sort of one at a time with a month separating the start date for, for each one. So this is quite a, a rigorous trial design for health services research. And that was published in BMC Medicine. And, you know, again, that sort of confirmed the results of the pilot trial where medium wait times are reduced by about 34%. But again, a lot also had a, a big change in variability. So the people, you know, the, the people who previously had the really long wait times came down much more in line with everybody else. So the effect wasn't equal for everybody. You know, the urgent people were getting seen anyway, but the people who were getting much lower priority categories who were, became the, the really long tail that's where it had a big change. And so, and then alongside all of those trials, we've also had some other accompanying studies looking at staff and patient perceptions. We've uh, had one looking um, at the you know, economic impact and found for a relatively small investment, you get a pretty good outcome. We've looked at sustainability over 12 months, which showed you know, some, some kind of washing out. You'd expect, you know, a little bit of going back to old habits, but you know, the, it's certainly a substantial change still being preserved at 12 months. And then we've done some evaluation to of our implementation approaches, you know, so things like the workshops. And, you know, we did a follow-up survey of services that have attended the workshops. And we found about half have been able to implement the model. So we're pretty pleased with that result. There's a paper about that that's under review at the moment, so hopefully that'll be published fairly soon. But so, you know, we do have now a fairly substantial body of evidence that tells us a lot, a lot about STAT, where it works, how it works, what some of the pros and cons are in terms of what people think of it and so forth. Like all health service interventions, it's, it's not perfect. It's not going to be exactly the right fit for every service. Not everybody is going to embrace it. It's going to suit some people much better than others. But we certainly feel that it has you know, a lot of applicability to a lot of different types of services. But certainly all of those publications are, are listed on the, the website. So if people are more interested in the science, they can go and, and find those references and, and have a look at them. That's great. Thank you, Catherine. I'm sure our listeners out there will be interested to go and have a look at some of the evidence that supports this particular model. Catherine, we'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you here and we encourage anybody out there who might be listening today to jump onto the website and we'll provide details of that on our Eastern Sector Development Team website. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. This has been Connecting the Pieces, a podcast for the Eastern Sector Development Team. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out our website, esdt.com.au, for other resources and contact information. Connecting the Pieces is recorded on Wurundjeri land. The Eastern Sector Development Team acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional custodians 
of land and sea throughout Australia and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Eastern Sector Development Team is supported by the Australian Government Department of Health and although funding has been provided by the Australian Government, the materials and comments made do not necessarily represent the views or the policies of the Australian Government.